we, uh, we inhabit a world where people refuse to think uh, seriously about truth. People refuse to think seriously about truth. This, this leads to absurdities that would be funny if they weren't so tragic. Uh, for example, I want to show you a video, a little video that was filmed at the University of Washington campus recently. Take a look. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I'd say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel like mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're 6'5". If you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong, like, that's wrong to believe in it, because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So, I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six-foot-five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six-foot-five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you are six foot five, or Chinese, or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? 
And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? The world is full of these kinds of politically correct, untenable absurdities. I think the economist Thomas Sowell uh, really said it best. In, in his book, Intellectuals and Society, he called these an idea so dumb only intellectuals could believe in it. <laughs> <clears throat> but before we laugh at other people's absurdities, please remember that even within churches, we see similar nonsense. Even within our church, we see similar nonsense. As I wrote in your notes, uh, you got a bulletin when you came in. Open it up. There's notes there. You'll see in your notes, churches also accept untenable absurdities. For example, suppose someone sees the face of Mary in his pizza, right? And he says that Mary spoke to him from the pizza. He then broadcasts his message from Mary. And the message from Mary is that all Christians must stand on their head once a day if they wish to remain justified before God. All right? If you're a Christian, to remain a Christian, you must stand on your head once per day. Is that ridiculous, yes or no? Yes. Thank you for saying yes. Thank you. You made my day right there. But it is almost certain that there will be churches that will adopt that nonsense as a new word from God. Almost certain. Speaking of words that really are from God, just consider how Christians twist and dance with the Bible in order to make it say what we want it to say. Usually what people want the Bible to say is directly related to some currently popular social issue. We want to boss God into agreeing with changing culture, or, or we, feel the need, we feel the need to protect Jesus' reputation in light of modern ideas. Professor Denny Burke then describes what we Christians do. Here's what Christians then do. This is very well said. He said, we adopt a way of reading Scripture that teaches readers to treat their own notions as more advanced and developed than that of Scripture. It's a hermeneutical, that, that's a fancy word for Bible study, it's a hermeneutical approach that militates against the Bible's integrity and authority. In short, it teaches readers to stand in judgment over Scripture. Close quote. In other words, where the Bible clearly shows a 5 foot 9 inch white guy, people teach the passage is actually describing a 6 foot 5 Chinese woman. Again, it would be funny if it weren't so tragic. Thankfully, there's, very clear, there's a very clear and simple solution. The answer to all this nonsense is sola scriptura. That's your fancy phrase for the day, boys and girls, your Latin for the day. At the count of three, you get to say sola scriptura. One, two, three, sola scriptura. Don't be unhorsed by the fancy Latin phrase. We only use it because for over 2,000 years, this has been the standard way to describe this idea, that Scripture is higher than any authority. It doesn't matter what anyone else tells you. If it doesn't gel with the Bible, you go with the Bible. Scripture alone, sola scriptura. Stephen Kozar is a, is a gifted artist. He produces amazing watercolors that look like <laughs> photographs. Look, look at this. That is a watercolor. Isn't that amazing? Guy's really, really gifted. Mr. Kozar is also a fairly good writer, and just as his paintings are designed to show depth of reality, so his writing attacks anything that is nonsensical or unreal. He's especially bothered by the lack of awareness in churches, the lack of awareness of the importance of sola scriptura. Listen to this great summary that, uh, that Kozar, Stephen Kozar wrote. Christianity is a specific set of beliefs that is based on one holy book, the Bible. Sola Scriptura is the Latin phrase meaning Scripture alone. This principle was first established in the first three centuries of the churches and then further established during the Protestant Reformation in contrast with the Roman Catholic Church which claimed that church authority, basically the Pope, was equal to Scripture. Close quote. You see, Scripture alone. 
No church, no pastor, no tradition, no prophet, no one has any authority higher than God's word. Now, Stephen brought up the, the idea of the background of Sola Scriptura. So let, let's quickly cover the history of the idea. Here's where it starts. Even as Moses even as God commanded Moses to record Scripture. Do you know what's going on in paganism? Paganism was producing other books that also claimed to be holy. However, there was one great difference visible from the very beginning, one great difference between God's words and the pagan works. God's words didn't change. You see, the pagan gods are capricious. They, they change. They vacillate just like people, and their concepts of truth shift over time. But God said His word endures forever. Read it with me. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. Let's all read it together. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Thank you. Forever. This was a completely different thing. Because Scripture is unchanging, 100% God's Word, it becomes the rule. The only standard is the Bible, period. That's why God revealed to Joshua the only way to really succeed is to follow God's Word. Um, read with me, Joshua chapter 1, verse 7. God speaks to Joshua. You take the underlined text. God speaks to Joshua and says, Only be very strong, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. That was the viewpoint of Scripture throughout the Old Testament. That's inherent in the ministry of Jesus, that view of sola scriptura. And when Jesus commissioned the works that became the New Testament, that high view of Scripture was unchanged. The New Testament works were also recognized as from God. You want to see this in a nutshell? Let me give you something to read. Um, look up and read a letter from 95 A.D. It's a very famous letter. It was written by a remarkable man named Clement. Some of you know he's one of my heroes. Clement led a large church in Rome, a wonderful large church in Rome. He was writing to the main church in the city of Corinth over in Greece. Uh, his discussion is fascinating. It has bearing on a number of important topics, not the least of which is our interpretation of the book of Romans. But here's the big deal that we need to note today about Clement's letter. Okay, two big things. Number one. Clement says, Scripture has top authority. It's the number one thing he says. Scripture has top authority. Number two, Clement references a whole lot of other, this is really important. He references a whole lot of other writings, all right? But he points out that while they're helpful, none of them are the Bible. Cool, right? It's clear, it's simple, it's wonderful. But you are never going to guess what happened. Later, church leaders in Rome took Clement's letter and they twisted it to support the idea, get this, support the idea that what Pastor Clement said has more authority than the Bible itself. Serious, true story. Ex post facto, they called him a pope. And they said what he or any other pope decreed was equal with or greater than the Bible itself. Clement must have rolled in his grave. Uh, a number of people fought this kind of erosion of sola scriptura over the years, and yet none really found widespread purchase until this guy, <laughs> Martin Luther. 499 years ago next month, Dr. Luther began a reformation, a successful reformation of the church. And he was roundly attacked for daring to say, in the enlightened 16th century no less, daring to say that God's word was the absolute authority. Uh, at, a, at a city called Worms, uh, at the Diet of Worms, Dr. Luther was even held on trial before the most powerful man in Europe, the Habsburg Emperor. I want you to look at the summary in our notes. Um, in your notes, take a look. This is from, this is from Dr. Houghton's great book, 
uh, Sketches from Church History, which I highly recommend, a wonderful summary of Christian history. He says this, Luther made his reply, the speech that shook the whole world, first in Latin, then in the German language. He did that so everybody could understand. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimonies of the scriptures that I am in error, for popes and councils have often erred and contradicted themselves, I cannot withdraw. For I am subject to the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. And then he possibly added, we can't tell from some of the extant accounts, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. Now, at this point in our discussion, you are likely thinking in that uh, pirate voice that you like to use in private, Arr, <laughs> but pastor, can ye prove sola scriptura from the scriptures themselves? <laughs> Thank you for asking. It's a great question. Um, it's a good question. Look to the right side of our notes, if you would, and let's briefly examine the scriptural statement of sola scriptura. What does the Bible have to say about sola scriptura? It starts with revelation, and by that I don't mean the last book in your Bible. It's the idea that God has spoken in a permanent fashion. Revelation is the process by which God communicates to humans knowledge of himself. Open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. All right, Ephesians 3, it's right after Galatians, just before Philippians in your New Testament. Let's read verses 2 and 3. Ephesians 3, 2 and 3. Paul is speaking, and he says, You have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you? The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. As the last person to hold the office of apostle, Paul was granted revelation. That is, God's Spirit worked with and through Paul to pen words that were intended to last forever. Those words reveal truth about God, about humans, about the real answers in life. This is the grace in Revelation, that the mysteries are laid clear. In Scripture, we have truth revealed, truth that sets us free forever. Compare that to my most recent tweet, okay? Just, just a little comparison. Last week, I wrote this. I wonder which will be the official cause of my death, the Rangers' late West Coast games or this year's bullpen, right? Okay, that, that's interesting. It's a little funny. How long will that last? It was forgotten the next day. And when communication evolves into the next thing, all those Facebook posts and Instagram photos and Twitter feeds are gonna be lost forever. I'm sorry, did that come too fast at you? Are you okay? Let me, I, I apologize, it really rattled. Just take a deep breath, okay? So sorry, but I got news for you. Okay, listen, this is very important. Someday, all of your social media will go the way of your VCR, okay? All right, now, if that's hard on you, let me comfort you with this. God's revealed communication lasts forever. God's revealed word never fades away, revelation. Second big biblical concept about Scripture is inspiration. Inspiration describes the process by which human beings are used in the writing of Scripture. Um, in his second letter, Peter gives a definitive statement on this. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. First of all, this is of primary importance. The Scripture is inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 puts it this way. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. God carried along human authors with all of their skill and their experience and their personality to record His breathed out word. Think that through. Think that through. That means that in the original autographs, this Bible contains exactly what God wanted it to say. 
It means that this is a different level of inspiration from when you were inspired to write that love poem that you wrote to your wife, right? Which she has kept for 30 years, and it's probably time to write another one, just for what it's worth. Um, that, however wonderful your love poem to your wife was, it's not as great, it's not the same kind of inspiration as God's words of love to all peoples of all times. But, as you are no doubt wondering in your uh, uh, Matthew McConaughey voice, that certainly proves the Old Testament's inspired. But what about the New Testament? Thank you. Great question. Um, so glad you asked. We, we were discussing that very issue. You like, you like Matthew McConaughey? Thank you. Um, Randall, Satchel, Randall Satchel of our pulpit team wrote an excellent summary. I, I've, I've read a great deal on this, and this may be the best summary I've ever read. Uh, Randall and I were talking about this, and he wrote this. He said, Wayne, uh, here's my summary of, of inspiration. He said, after his resurrection, before his ascension, Jesus told his followers. This is a quote from Acts chapter 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Randall goes on. The New Testament documents were written by these witnesses or people directly writing for these witnesses, including everything except the letters of Paul. But Paul's calling and authority are also without doubt. And his writings were even recognized by Peter to be on par with the Old Testament writing, which he compares with Paul's letters as 2 Peter 3, the other scriptures, close quote, spot on. The Old and New Testaments are the revealed, inspired word of God. Third, big basic idea in sola scriptura is the doctrine of illumination. Illumination describes the work of the Holy Spirit as he enables a believer to understand and apply divine truth. Now, there is one, there is one difference. The first two aspects of sola scriptura, revelation and inspiration, they are named by those terms in the Bible. The word illumination does not appear anywhere in Scripture. However, the concept of illumination is thoroughly biblical. Uh, look up here, John 14, here's an example of illumination. Uh, Jesus, in the upper room, speaking to his followers, says this, I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, my Father will send him in my name will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you, close quote. God promises to reveal his text to his people for their blessing and his purposes. And by the way, it's wise to think of all these together, revelation, inspiration, illumination, because they work together. A couple of scholars I really respect uh, explain, uh, doctors Lee and Griffin say this, the three concepts are related to one another because the concept of revelation, the disclosure of truth, demands inspiration to guarantee its accurate disclosure. The concept of inspiration demands the concept of illumination in order for the written record to be understood properly. Cool, cool. But recently, there have been some pretty serious attacks on the idea of sola scriptura. It has been pretty heavily under attack. Some of my friends, dear brothers in Christ, have started preaching less than sola scriptura because, because they find it hard sledding to talk about biblical authority in a culture that, quite frankly, distrusts all authority. They find that difficult, and I understand. Other people, now most of these are not even Christians, they are writing nonsense that is so poorly thought through, so poorly thought through, I am, I am embarrassed for them and I am horrified for the people they lead. Sola Scriptura matters. It is not only logical and clear, it reforms every century anew. It is important to be able to make a clear defense of the import and the authority of the Bible. Doctors Lee and Griffin summarize really nicely. Look what they say. The fact that the Bible is inspired by God leads us to assert that the Bible is infallible, inerrant, and authoritative. 
Evangelicals believe that God must reveal the truth to them, and they feel the locus of that revelation is Scripture. We who hold to the authority of Scripture turn to the Scripture for statements of our beliefs and practices. All God's people said? So, let's discuss the impact of sola scriptura. Okay, I, I heard all that, but what difference does the Bible really make? I see four big changes that come about because of sola scriptura. Number one, the Christian can do the good that God wants done. We, we read from 2 Timothy 3.16. Here's the whole passage. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God breathed out his word for this reason, so that you and I could be equipped for every good work, not to fill our heads with data, although data can be useful. Scripture isn't given merely to fill our hearts with warmth, although warmth is fine. God didn't speak his Bible just so we could get degrees in it, although education can be great. God gave his word so that I could be equipped to do the good things that God prepared beforehand so that I might walk in them, period. Scripture allows us to do what God wants done. Now notice, this is very different from using the Bible to make God approve what we want to do. And, and actually, that's what Christians tend towards. Listen, I am not picking on our beloved family in Christ. I am not. It is loving. It is loving to point out that Christians have a tendency to use the Bible not to do God's good works, but to instead reinforce our own internal desires. For example, it is probably no surprise that in our sexually perverted age, many people inside and outside the churches twist a great deal of the Bible to make God somehow seem to support their bad ideas about human sexuality. Uh, let, me, let me quote from a Lutheran pastor. Hans Fiene is a Lutheran pastor. He gives a perfect description of this. Look, look at this. This is really brilliant. He says, no matter what kind of sexual practice you're trying to justify, this formula works each time. First, invent a new kind of sexual practice that's indistinguishable from a pre-existing sexual practice. Second, insist that God is not talking about the new sexual practice when he clearly condemns it in, in the Scripture. Finally, insist that God is praising the new sexual practice when he's clearly not talking about it. So, in the near future, when those poor oppressed mothers who desire to marry their sons, and he says, yes, that is a real thing. Did you know that? That is a real thing. Let, let me interrupt his quote real quickly. Did you hear about the case in Oklahoma this past week? Mother arrested for marrying her daughter. Her daughter. Here's, here's why it was so fascinating. Uh, at the arraign, That's illegal for now. Um, at the arraignment, she said the most fascinating two words. She said, why not? Why not? If all truth is malleable? It's a great question. Okay, back, back to the quote. Um, when those poor oppressed mothers who desire to marry their sons, yes, that's a real thing, need a champion to defend their cause, you'll know what to do. Step one, note a recent discovery that some people are genetically hardwired to express familial love through sexual contact, all right? Note that. That's important. Step two, argue that every instance of the Bible forbidding incestuous relationships, and they are replete, those refer only to icky, unloving incest and not the loving, compassionate form of incest we've newly discovered. Right? Step three, argue that Paul requiring Christians to provide for their relatives obviously includes meeting the sexual needs of those who require affection to be shown in a rather Oedipusian fashion. Close quote. Brilliant. 
course, none of that will really help the people who desperately need real truth. More on that in a moment. But that is the exact formula that people have repeatedly employed for the past 50 years. And it has nothing to do with accomplishing God's good work. Instead of that, instead of twisting Scripture, let's let God's Word shape us, right? Let's let God's Word shape us for good works. All God's people said? And when we let God's Word shape us for good works instead, a second great thing occurs. The Christian is challenged to live differently. Live differently in every aspect of life. Look at the powerful image. Hebrews chapter 4 gives this image. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is a a majestic expansion of a concept that is first expressed uh, in Psalm 19. I'd like you to read with me, please. Psalm 19, verse 7. You take the underlined text. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. Thank you. How many of you were blessed with a really great earthly parent or grandparent? You had a parent or grandparent who were just awesome. Raise your hand. Okay, that's all. Lots of people. Great. All right. Imagine that that you have a fantastic parent or grandparent, and that wonderful parent writes you a letter about something you're facing, about uh, starting a new job or going to school or or raising children or taking care of an aging relative or facing tragedy. Now, when you get that letter, would you take that letter to heart, yes or no? Yeah, sure. Would you try to embody the principles set forth by your forebear? Of, Of course you would. Guys in a much more permanent and important fashion. Your heavenly Father has written to you. And you know what his letters do? They they expose our foolishness. They call us to live correctly instead, relying on Jesus' grace in all that we do. Look, as a friend of mine said recently, brilliant quote, buddy of mine wrote me and he said this, Wayne, our real problem with the Bible is not solving real or supposed discrepancies, it is applying what is manifestly clear. Applying what's manifestly clear is our real problem. For example, consider the command. You probably all know Jesus' comment in Luke chapter 10. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. When that calling penetrates my heart, what happens? I have to get to work. I have to to work with God's Spirit and by His strength to, to dump my idols to, to obey his command, to love my neighbor as God commands and Jesus empowers me to do. You know what I have to do? I have to lay down my life for them. That's what love is. Love is laying down your life, even for the ones who are my enemies. I have to lay down my life. That, friends, is a challenge to different living. That kind of living reforms my soul, and it, it blesses all those around me. Does it not? Amen? third thing sola scriptura achieves is what we started with. Error is exposed as the nonsense it is. Psalm 19 continues. Look at the continued thought. Verse 11. In addition, your servant is warned or corrected by them. And in context, the them is God's words. There is great reward in keeping them. Why don't you look up here at this photo, please? This is a, this is a baseball path. This is the path of a baseball. Everybody just tell me, is that a home run? Yes or no? No. no. What is it? It's a what? It's a foul ball. Went a long ways, but it's still foul. 
I show you that picture because it is very popular among humans to declare that if somebody is just passionate enough, they must be doing some good. But the Bible teaches there are lines that, if crossed, make that effort negative. It doesn't matter how hard the ball is hit. If it is foul, a strike goes against you. The foul lines matter. Remember the painter we met, uh, Steve Kozar? Look, look at it. Beautiful. That's watercolor. Isn't that amazing? Um, listen to his blog post on this. Steve Kozar wrote a blog uh, post on this, and he said this. Because we believe the Bible is God's word... We must also believe that some ideas are incompatible with the Bible and must be rejected as false. While it's true that Christians should not be primarily negative and critical people, we should be willing to say negative and critical things about false teachings because bad doctrine is very harmful. It leads people away from God. The painful reality is that false teachers are great manipulators and they know exactly what to say in order to keep your trust and to keep their money pouring in. So sometimes it's necessary to say negative and critical things to confront them and their teachings. The Old Testament prophets, Jesus, all the apostles did this a lot. Close quote. God's truth exposes error as the nonsense that it is. What's the impact of sola scriptura? Christians can do what God wants done. We, we live differently. We're being continually reformed and changed Error is exposed. And last but not least, the world is blessed with what it needs. You know what the world needs? Truth. When we live sola scriptura, error gets replaced with truth. You, you may know this. If not, you will learn it. Listen very carefully. Even those who hate God ultimately come to a point where they recognize how badly they need truth. For example, I want you to look up here. One of the most astonishing texts in all of the biblical histories. Look at this. 1 Kings chapter 22. The king said to him, and him is a prophet of God, How many times must I make you swear not to tell me anything but the truth in the name of Yahweh? Close quote. The context makes this mind-blowing. Anybody know, anybody know which king said that? Which king of Israel said that statement right there? Ahab. Ahab, wicked, horrible, nasty, obsessed King Ahab. There's a reason Melville made, you know, this guy chasing after the white whale who represents God. He is horrible. Ahab did not like truth. He wanted to kill truth. He hated Elijah, the prophet of God who spoke truth, tried to murder the man. And, and yet, even Ahab recognized the need for God's man to tell him nothing but truth. I need you to tell me truth. This is probably the most intriguing thing I get to hear at the Newcomer Desserts uh, at Frisco Bible Church. It is a regular occurrence, regular occurrence for somebody to tell me they don't believe in Jesus. That happens all the time. Sometimes they add something like this. They say, look, I don't want to accept the whole Jesus thing, and I don't really understand it, and I don't like it when people talk Bible. Okay, that's what they'll say. And I then look at them and I ask, so why are you here? Uh, I mean, we're delighted to have you. We, we're glad we want you to stay and keep coming. But I'm just curious, why do you come? The reply, which I hear nearly every time, the reply is amazing. They say, well, I, I need to hear real truth. I may not ever trust Jesus, but I need to know the real deal. I, I need to know what it is that I am accepting or rejecting. So I, I then usually will ask for clarity. I'll say, so, so you come to hear truth that you don't want to hear, to which they reply, Exactly. Cool. That's awesome. The world knows it needs truth. Christian, listen. 
If you water down that truth and settle for less than sola scriptura, you actually are going to drive those people away. Uh, journalist Kenneth Briggs uh, of the New York Times, he wrote for the New York Times for a long, long time. Kenneth Briggs has some great observations about how Scripture blesses the world. Uh, he, he sees three sad declines in our current age. By the way, this is from his book that I, that I really like, The Invisible Bestseller, just came out. Um, he says this, number one, one consequence of our increasing biblical illiteracy is the weakening of awareness of how deeply Scripture inhabits Western culture, particularly in the arts and public political life. Practically every major author, painter, composer, and thinker within American classroom curricula has drawn from biblical wellsprings, but the youngest generations of Americans are losing the language they need to decode our oldest and most transcendent cultural resources. Number two, another result of biblical defection is the loss of a consistent moral compass in American society. Despite sharp differences among liberals and conservatives, the Bible has throughout our history provided a standard of behavior that spanned economic, religious, and ethnic lines, but it now goes widely ignored. Number three, this leads to, Kenneth Briggs continues, this leads to a further side effect of our becoming untethered from the Bible, a withering of the sense of common good in the face of rising individualism. The Bible teaches those who read it to deny themselves and fix their eyes on things above, yet now... We instead seek money and power, affirmation and absolute autonomy, close quote. What he's saying is we, we need and the world needs the Bible to be exalted. So what are we going to do about that? Well, I think we must do exactly what our forefathers did. We need to partner with God in reforming ourselves and our church and our world. Here we stand, we can do no other. That's why we have chosen Reformed as our annual theme for this year. The, the, just consider this. Let me, let me show you the premise of our annual theme. This is what we talked about internally with the pulpit team and the elders. Uh, the premise is why. Why are we studying this? Look, here's what we wrote. The Protestant Reformation celebrates its 500th birthday in 2017, reminding us the Reformation was about truth. Here in the 21st century, the world once again needs a reformation as truth is badly skewed. While we had originally planned to discuss reformation doctrines next fall, we feel compelled to study this now as mounting misunderstanding and misinformation plague people both without and within Jesus' churches. Close quote. In other words, we desperately are needed to perform and a year was too long to wait. My favorite theologian, Rat, uh, spoke to this in a recent Pearls Before Swine cartoon. Rat is writing a letter, and he, his letter is this. Dear President Obama, this country needs reform, a whole lot of reform. So I propose we start with the following new law. The next hipster to make the peace sign in a photo gets both those fingers fed to a wolverine. <laughs> and then he turns to Pig and he says, it's nice to be part of the solution. <laughs> However much you may agree with his sentiment, Rob. Um, Rat doesn't really have the reform solution the world needs, does he? But you and I can be part of a real solution. And, and this is not merely as an outward show. Listen, we need to change where Scripture pierces in our souls. I love the way our women's director, Jen Bryant, phrased, uh, phrased a note that she sent to all our staff. This was back when we were studying Zephaniah. And, and Jen Bryant wrote this to all our staff. She said, under the reforms of Judas King Josiah, the people did return to God outwardly, but their hearts were far from him. We must ask ourselves, is our reform merely an outward show, or is it changing our hearts and lives? Close quote. 
It's a great question, and it's one you and I are going to ask all this year. Our goal is real reform, not just surface show, which takes us to our series objective. And I, and I put this in your notes, the objective of our series, what we hope to see God accomplish in us through this study, that we are influencers of, not merely influenced by the common culture. We influence by understanding and living out the foundational truths of biblical Christianity, ever reforming ourselves, our church, and our world. This year, we'll be focused on reform, reform accomplished through truth. Specifically, in response to this first sola, we must work to become biblically educated. So I have a challenge for each one of us. You ready? I think it would greatly benefit us and the world around us if we read through the entire Bible in the next 90 days. If we read the Bible before the end of this calendar year. So I'd like you to go to friscobible.com slash 90 days. Uh, friscobible.com slash nine zero days and you'll find there two different guides two guides that we have for you there here's one that I printed out this is the one I'll be using and and there are others you can look up others if you'd prefer I, I enjoyed these two but they are guides as to how you can read through the Bible in 90 days every day you just read some it it only take you it'll take you less than 30 minutes a day you miss one rerun of friends okay really I think that's a fairly good substitution. You read through it every day. Do you have to? No, of course you don't have to. But I think you should. I think you and I should adopt this as a spiritual discipline. Spiritual disciplines are something that we don't have to do, but we do by God's grace because it helps us grow up in the Lord. Something the journalist uh, Briggs said especially motivated me. Look, look, look what he said. He said, the disappearance of the Bible from public consciousness has by now become a widely acknowledged condition of 21st century Christianity. But whereas pre-Reformation Christians were mostly unable to read the Bible, contemporary churchgoers are increasingly choosing not to. Poll after poll shows Bible reading falling and biblical illiteracy consequently rising. The centerpiece of Western Protestantism has faded. According to the Pew Research Center, daily Bible reading among Americans has dropped to a new low of 16%. Close quote. Please, instead of that, let's be part of the solution. An elder at a massive church, a huge <laughs> church in another place, he wrote me recently, got an email from this elder at this church, and he wondered why I preach from and why I encourage people to read all the difficult passages of the Bible. Um, this elder said that his huge church could not fathom ever preaching on most of the Bible. And, and he wrote me, he said, we do not encourage Bible studies in our church even unless those Bible studies are topical only in nature. And, and what he really wanted to know was this. He said, I'm wondering, how is it that you handle all the questions that must be coming at you from people who are bothered by all of those scriptures? How do you handle all the questions? I, I wrote the guy back. I wrote him and I said, we do get lots of questions. And it's great. It is great. That's why we have pastors. So they can answer those questions and help educate. And then... I gently, I gently asked him if he wasn't a little bothered that his church's practice really resembled the big church-state complex reaction that fought against the Reformation. I reminded him that Rome also forbade people to read the Bible because they said it would confuse them. By contrast, at Frisco Bible Church, we are going to dive into the only authoritative guide, and that is the Bible. If you get confused and you get bothered, that's great! That's great! That means you're being reformed. Good gracious, you may actually be thinking for the first time in a month. 
If you really get bothered, just write me. Just write me. I will likely pass it on to one of our wonderful team, and they will help you think and grow up in the Bible. You know what we're going to do? Together, we are going to delight in God's Word. All God's people said?